Hi, this is filmmaker and author Michael Morin. Whenever I'm not riding my bike around the Davis campus, I'm listening to KDVS College Radio right here. FM. Cool. This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. Uh, If any of you out there have been trying to access our 140 or so podcast programs on the website, you may have noticed an occasional glitch of late. Uh, we're going to do our best to make sure that that uh, does not carry on into the future, and we expect that we'll have everything on um, on our website, which is radioparallax.com, from about our first, uh, well, our first year on. First year won't be there, but everything after that will be. And I should note, we've now been on the air here at KDVS as of this week, four years. Blogging and bloggers have been in the news lately, what with a, uh, a conference in Las Vegas of the first yearly COS convention of left-wing bloggers. We're going to talk to uh, one of the aforementioned, our favorite blogger, Brad Friedman, uh, in our second segment on today's program. Brad has been tirelessly publicizing the issue of uh, electronic voting and uh, electronic uh, chicanery on his website, and uh, and so are we. So we're, we're a natural fit. We look forward to, again, uh, talking to Brad in segment two. Let us commence this program, as we like to do, with On This Date in History. On This Date in History, which is June 22nd, in the year 1933, Nazi Germany became a one-party state. Although the Social Democrats had won the second largest number of seats in the election of March 23rd, in which the Nazis had failed to win an absolute majority, the last of their deputies were thrown out of the Reichstag on the grounds that they were, quote, subversive and inimical to the state, unquote. Exactly eight years to the day after Hitler effectively assumed absolute power in Germany, The German armies, estimated at 3 million men, with allies from Italy, Romania, Hungary, and Finland, invaded the Soviet Union in Operation Barbarossa. This was the largest invasion in the history of the world, and hostilities would soon stretch along a 2,000-mile front from the Baltic to the Black Sea. We uh, we had an excellent interview uh, last year, last June, with Konstantin Pleshikov, author of Stalin's Folly. We would like to refer you to our website for show number 156. If it's not up as I speak, it will be shortly. But that was actually one of our our favorite uh, interviews, and I expect that at some point in the future, when we have an encore presentation of Radio Parallax, that we will will again uh, air that segment. On June 22nd in 1970, the mounting death toll of the Vietnam War continued to affect some social change domestically when President Richard Milhouse Nixon signed a bill which allowed 18-year-olds to vote. This was the same age when men must, had to then register for the draft. This ended the terrible reality of the fact that you were subject to the military draft prior to this without being able to vote for the politicians which put the policies in place. 
two years later, the draft was canceled, and the United States went on to an, an all-volunteer army. And uh, on a considerably happier note than the prior three items, on this date in 1922, American swimming legend Johnny Weissmiller broke four gold records in one day at a meet in Hawaii. Although he went on to win gold medals in the 1928 and 1932 Olympics, Weissmiller earned the major part of his fame by playing Tarzan in the movies. I want to thank Mr. McMillan for that musical tie-in to uh, to Johnny Weissmiller's exploits in Hawaii. In case you don't know, that is actually the Hawaiian war chant and a, a, a pretty good little piece of music. We have uh, two quotes of the day today. The first comes from Hollywood mogul Joseph E. Levine, who once said, You can fool all the people all the time. If the advertising's right and the budget's big enough. But let us balance that off, shall we, with uh, the political philosopher Edmund Burke, who once said, Nobody made a greater mistake than he who did nothing because he could only do a little. Our statistic of the day comes from the Baltimore Sun, which noted that only 11% of Americans say they plan to watch any World Cup soccer games on television. In the future, we're going to try and bring back our sports correspondent, Sean Minton, to talk about <laughs> to talk about World Cup fever. Uh, we must confess that, you know, maybe we're Philistines, but, you know, kicking a ball up, kicking a ball back, kicking a ball up, kicking a ball back, kicking a ball up, kicking a ball back, playing to a zero-to-zero tie, probably not likely to catch on in America. Fortunately, I feel I do have a solution to the problem of soccer. Let them pick up the ball with their hands. Well, I mean, let's face it, ladies and gentlemen. We're talking about five, ten million years of hominid evolution developed because we used tools, we used our hands, our arms. That kind of gave you a feedback brain, hand, arms. Soccer came along and decided that that loop was not necessary. Anyway, as I say, we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about it on next week's show, possibly with our aviation correspondent, who, uh, when I called to see if he wanted to appear on this week's show, said, you're calling in the middle of Serbia's appearance in the World Cup? We're going to have to ask him about the chances of the former Yugoslavian nations, who, let's face it, eight different nations used to be in one country. When you slice up the soccer talent eight ways, it's got to be bad. And our, our joke of the day was sent to us by our, our good friend Phil Proctor, he of the Firesign Theater. It goes as follows. A Greek and an Italian were arguing about who had made the greater contributions to world history and world culture. The Greek said, well, the Greeks built the Parthenon. The Italian countered with, well, yes, but the Italians built the Colosseum. The Greek said, well, we gave, we gave the world Alexander the Great. The Italian said, yes, but we gave the world the Roman Empire. The Greek said, we brought sex to Western civilization. The Italian said, yes, but we introduced it to women. Yeah, we're kind of on a little bit of a limb with that one, I guess, but we ran that joke past our good friend, 
Chris, who is Greek, and he, he laughed pretty heartily, so I, I, I think we're okay. All right, uh, The Week magazine arrived in time for this week's show, thanks to our late and hardworking postman. So let us do what we like to do, the good, the bad, and the ugly. All right, according to The Week magazine, last week was a good week for non-attachment after the supreme patriarch of Cambodia's 40,000 Buddhist monks ruled that they could watch World Cup soccer games as long as they were silent and impassive. Screaming and cheering with an angry face or a happy feeling are the acts of street kids, said Non Nyet, warning that violators would, quote, lose their monkhoods, unquote. On the other hand, last week was a bad week for false alarms after security screeners evacuated 450 passengers from the Tallahassee Regional Airport when they thought they spotted an improvised bomb in the carry-on bag of food writer Todd Coleman. The bomb turned out to be a digital recording device, an oyster shell, a bottle of Tupelo honey, and a bottle of Bad Byron's butt rub. I'm, I'm just reporting it as I read it. But you know, when you go through life, sometimes you're just grateful for certain things. I myself am grateful that I am not Todd Coleman and don't have to explain to anyone what I was doing with a bottle of Bad Byron's Butt Rub. And last week was an ugly week, I think, for all of us who have to deal with the Trial Lawyers Association here in America. After a robber who held up an auto parts store at gunpoint decided to now sue the store for, quote, emotional distress because two of its employees beat him with a metal pipe and held his own gun on him while they called the police. The robber, Dana Buckman, was convicted and is now serving 18 years in jail. But Buckman's lawyer contends that the AutoZone employees should never have left the store to pursue Buckman after he made his getaway. The danger was past, said Philip Hurwitz. If it had happened in the store and they were defending themselves, it would be a whole different story. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I hope that Mr. Hurwitz is not successful in his legal endeavors. I, I don't want to pay higher prices at AutoZone because of the big payment they had to make for the armed robber's emotional distress. As far as I can see, if you enter a store with a handgun with intent to rob it, you, know, you should be counting on a certain amount of emotional distress. But hey, that's just one man's opinion. might be a good time to note that the opinions that are expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. But then, you knew that. All right, and here's an item from the Life Imitating Art file. Mr. McMillan, would you please cue up the appropriate music? Three, would you lock the door? 
Yes, uh, when he sang that song on Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band 39 years ago, uh, an album which many consider to be arguably you know, the greatest in the history of rock and roll, young Paul McCartney was just shy of his 25th birthday, but now he really is 64. It seems clear that the things uh, Mr. McCartney may have been worried about when he achieved the age of 64 uh, are probably not going to materialize. He doesn't have to worry about who's going to need him and feed him. He may, however, have to worry about who is going to bleed him in his upcoming divorce. But, uh, you know, uh, he's still doing okay. And congratulations to Sir Paul McCartney for making it to 64. Who could ask for more? Will you still need me? All right, let's do a few miscellaneous items. I like this one from the, the, the from a few weeks back. <laughs> when you think you think you got bad politicians here in America, and we do, yeah, we may take some comfort in knowing that at least we don't live in Peru. <laughs> Voters in that South American nation returned Alan Garcia to the presidency a couple weeks back. 16 years after he fled the country to avoid a corruption investigation. Not only did he flee the country over issues of corruption, he was accused during his first term of mismanaging the economy and failing to suppress a violent guerrilla movement. Said Garcia in his victory speech, We must think tonight of all our past errors and make an act of contrition. Also from the miscellaneous file, the Wall Street Journal noted uh, a couple weeks back that hundreds of local governments have passed ordinances banning the creation of new cul-de-sacs. City planners say these dead ends, which were popular during the suburban boom of the 60s, contribute to traffic congestion by making it impossible to drive through residential neighborhoods, forcing all cars onto major thoroughfares. I think we can probably live without the cul-de-sac. What do you think, dear listener? What, s- send us your opinion at info at radioparallax.com on the issue of cul-de-sacs or on weightier matters that may come to your mind. If you think there's some issue you'd like to hear us talk about and, and look into, hey, send us a line. All right, uh, let's, talk, uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the major headlines. Um, we know we'd like to just give Iraq arrest this week. The news coming out of there seems so bad that I'm not sure I want to even talk about it. Except perhaps to note that in reading the coverage of what's going on over there uh, in the welco- in the wake of, uh, of al-Zarqawi's death and his successor, that the media keeps referring to al-Qaeda in Iraq, which I think places firmly in the public mind the notion that we are in Iraq fighting al-Qaeda. Well, Zarqawi named his group of insurgents after al-Qaeda a couple of years after the September 11th attacks. In fact, it was only after the United States military invaded the nation that this, uh, this group, so-called al-Qaeda, surfaced. We think it's uh, worth stressing the fact that this group, al-Qaeda in Iraq, is not part of the Osama bin Laden-directed terror network. Article by Liz Sly of the Chicago Tribune organization in Dateline Baghdad, Iraq, starts out, Al-Qaeda in Iraq vowed Sunday to carry out major attacks, etc., etc. But the headline doesn't say Al-Qaeda in Iraq. It says Al-Qaeda. To the casual reader of the Sacramento Bee front page, it would then appear that our war on terror going on in Iraq 
is a battle between forces of the United States and forces of Al-Qaeda being waged in a foreign country and perhaps leaving us safer because it is being waged in a foreign country, not here domestically. It's a subtle point, but it's not a minor one, and we want to keep talking about that in the future. Since we're talking about how the news is perceived and major news stories, uh, which is kind of where we are right now, I I have to um, take a moment to talk about this alleged threat of North Korea launching a missile. If you've been following the story, you you will have noted that uh, it is alleged that North Korea may have a missile and it may be preparing to launch it as a test. Now, admittedly, uh, North Korea is a very bad government and one of the three places in the world you can currently find a true blue communist government. The other two, of course, being Cuba and the Berkeley City Council. But it might be good, you know, as all these pundits are talking, Fox News is showing, you know, aerial maps of, of, of North Korea, a country, by the way, that if you show a satellite photo of at night, you'll notice that the lights are out everywhere. There's a lot of talk about a, a supposed North Korean uh, nuclear program. Uh, <laughs> there's, even, there's even dark, ominous allegations that, well, you know, if they have any nukes, number one, and if they have a missile that works, number two, well, then by God, they could have an intercontinental ballistic missile with a nuclear warhead, maybe. Except that cooler heads have pointed out that it's rather difficult to put a nuclear weapon on the top of a missile. And since we have in place a Cold War relic of, uh, of the great nuclear standoff, one that is prepared to, to uh, basically take on the 15,000 nuclear-tipped missiles that the USSR used to have, having one possibly pointed at the west coast of the U.S. is not something that's terribly likely to be launched. When they were making, uh, you know, dire predictions about weapons of mass destruction, supposedly in Iraq, we pointed this out a couple of years ago, that Saddam Hussein, like Kim Jong-il, likes to breathe, eat, and stay alive. Therefore, (laughs) launching a suicidal attack with a missile on the U.S., and of course, all missiles come with return addresses on them. Launch a ballistic missile anywhere in the world, and I guarantee you, spy satellites will see where it starts and how it tracks. But let us contrast our relative lack of concern with that which you're reading in, say, WashingtonPost.com, which is as follows. The Bush administration is weighing responses to a possible North Korean missile test that include attempting to shoot it down in flight over the Pacific, defense officials told the Associated Press on Tuesday. The officials agreed to discuss the matter only on condition of anonymity because of its political sensitivity. Pentagon spokesman Brian Whitman said he could not say whether the multi-billion dollar U.S. anti-missile defense system might be used in the event of a North Korean test. The article goes on in what we would have to rank as the understatement of 2006, at least so far in the year. (laughs) Quote, That system, which includes a handful of missiles that could be fired from Alaska and California, has a spotty record in tests. Now, we might be wrong on this, but to our knowledge, the only missiles the Pentagon has been able to shoot down so far with its multi-billion dollar defense system were ones that contain GPS tracking homing beacons. 
Yes, that's correct. If you place a homing beacon on the missile so that a missile is attempting to shoot it down, know exactly where to find it in three dimensions, then sometimes, not always, but sometimes the tests are successful. Now it's true, we don't have access to the classified information that the CIA and NSA do provide the administration with, but we venture to guess that it is highly probable that the dictator of North Korea, Kim Jong-il, was not planning to place a homing device on the missile as he shot it in the general direction of U.S. forces. All right, let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax on KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. I'm Douglas Everett, and I'll be joined shortly by uh, Brad Friedman, our favorite blogger. <laughs> 